the value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. So roughly one in five people have brokerage accounts in the US, which compares to the UK currently, which is roughly one in, one in 20. So we think the growth runway is really supported when we look across the pond. Welcome to the third episode of our Quality Investing podcast series. My name is Kerri-Anne Satry, a portfolio specialist in 91's quality investment team, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by two of our portfolio managers, Ben Needham and Anna Farnborough, who specialize in UK equities in the quality team. We're here today to put a bit of a spotlight on the UK, which is well known for a myriad of reasons, from the British monarchy to its iconic landscapes, even the pub culture resonates widely. But arguably, one of the most prominent associations with the UK is that it's one of the world's leading financial hubs. Now, in the UK financial sector, it tends to be known for its traditional banking institutions. However, I want to really get under the bonnet of this and see if there are any other investment avenues other than banks in the UK's diverse financial landscape. So, Ben, as a specialist in the UK, perhaps you could kick us off with some of your initial thoughts. So indeed, the, the UK financial sector is generally known for its traditional banks, which include the likes of Lloyd's, NatWest, Barclays, Standard Charter and HSBC. And there's been a bit of a lost decade in total shareholder returns if you look at these, some of these business, businesses historically, which make up now, I think, 10% of, or approximately 10% of the FTSE all share. Fortunately, there is a lot more to the sector overall than this, with some very interesting investment opportunities in a group of companies that we can loosely frame as other financials and UK savings companies within that. So what do we mean by the UK savings companies? We're really thinking about the businesses that are closest to the customer. So we're thinking about AJ Bell, the Harvey's Lansdowne's and, and, and St. James's place of this world. Why are they interesting? Well, they're interesting because they're the scale plays on the UK savings space and scale is really important because the major growth avenue is via word of mouth and so St James's Place, Hargis Lansdowne and AJ Bell are in a privileged position in the UK because they get that word of mouth. You know my dad knows absolutely nothing about Hargis Lansdowne but he has a Hargis Lansdowne account because I do. Same with my mum. I'm not going to say they're very good at using it but, but they both have one. The other point to say is customer loyalty is, is high. You know, the switching costs are pretty high. Once you have an account set up, you know, you really cannot be too bothered to move it, or I can't at least, um, and that, that helps. So if you look at the retention ratios of all three businesses, you know, they are in the 90% plus region. St. James's Place, in fact, is, is as high as 96%, and that's because the advisor holds their hand. You know, the advisor is really close to the customer. And, and helps them through a cycle and make sure they do not do the wrong things at the wrong point in the cycle, which I think is a point that's often, that's often overlooked. And then, you know, these businesses are quite enduring. You know, Hargreaves Lansdowne has been around for over, over 40 years now and has been really tested in the 90s. And, and it's got through a, a, a tough period of disruption. And I think it's really worth you know, honing in on, on that point. And then finally, you know, the financial models are good. Um, so the incremental capital... Uh, required to service an existing customer is next to nothing. You know, when they add their ISAs, ISA money or when they add uh, their SIP money each year, you know, the actual cost to, to process that um, to process that incremental flow is, is next to nothing, which, you know, which is another attraction. And, you know, we, we do like businesses or we're attracted to businesses that can grow in a capital-like way, and these, these companies are all definitely that. 
So, you know, scale, scale incumbent positions with high customer loyalty, attractive financial models and a high probability of good growth ahead. You know, in essence, the space is a cocktail for, for good compounding in, if the companies can, can get it right. Very interesting, Ben, that you alluded to the fact that you were very unlikely to change your savings account in this lifetime because uh, I read an interesting stat the other day which said that there's more people globally that are likely to enter divorce than change their savings platforms. So, you know, we talk about quality being focused on companies that have enduring competitive advantages and sticky moats, and, that, and that's exactly what these type of companies uh, encapsulate. So, you know, you've briefly mentioned being close to the consumer, Ben, and this is obviously one element of a value chain. So, Anna, would you be able to break this down for us and talk us through the different areas of that value chain? And uh, what are some of the puts and takes in that area? Yes, I think you can identify three specific areas to the value chain um, amongst UK savings. So at one end, you have the advisor businesses or the direct consumer businesses, such as St. James's Place or Hargis Lansdowne and they interact directly with the consumer, they're the closest to the end customer. And then in the middle, you have advisor platforms and discretionary fund managers who provide assistance with asset allocation or platform services for advisors. And and that would include companies like AJ Bell, Integrafin, Bruin Dolphin. And then at the other end, you have the pure fund management businesses, such as the one that we work in, which build portfolios, either for end retail investors or for advisory businesses. Generally, we think the businesses that are closest to the customer are the most attractive as they have the highest customer retention ratios and the greatest fragmentation amongst their customer base. So if one customer leaves Hargreaves Lansdowne out of 1.8 million customers, it doesn't really impact the overall business. We also think the majority of customers are slightly less price sensitive at these levels because service, functionality and reputation matter more than just straightforward pricing, which you see at the fund management end of the spectrum but it's also worth it's also worth highlighting the risk and the downside of the business models that are closest to the customer because they have higher fixed costs so they're quite operationally geared which is wonderful when markets are going up and flows are rising but pretty painful environments such as the one that we're in at the moment and have seen for the last few years Um, and it's easier to cut costs at traditional fund managers where pay particularly is far more variable some valid points, but I think overall you can see there's there's a lot of merits to one part of the value chain. If one side of the value chain is more attractive than the other, does that mean that we are likely to see more consolidation? Definitely. You've seen a lot more consolidation in the last few years in particular. So recently Aberdeen brought Interactive Investors, which is the direct-to-consumer platform, principally because they wanted to be closer to the customer. And, and scale, particularly at the platform end of the spectrum, is really important because you can automate the cost base and leverage against that. So it's, it's a great driver for consolidation. Just just circling back to the point that Anna made on a recession and that fixed costs are high the nearer you are to the customer, it is worth noting that these businesses have evolved how they monetize client assets over time. So the likes of AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne, you know, they do have a, a big element of net interest income to their revenue model, as well as the renewal income, which is a a platform fee if you like on assets as well as the trading revenues as well and at different points in the cycle one of those buckets can can kick in more than the other bucket so for instance in an inflationary environment which we're in today net interest income is is a big tailwind if 
inflation inflationary uh, scenario recedes and we get deflation maybe trading can pick up again like it did in 2020 and through a cycle you know you'll, you'll always have that renewal income so yes fixed costs are, are higher compared to the traditional asset managers but we would probably argue that the way they monetize client assets is perhaps slightly more diversified than what traditional fund managers do. Thank you both. That's a great deep dive into the UK savings space and how it operates. So I think if we if we reconstruct that deconstruction and uh, go back to talking about the platform industry as a whole, you know, we've been quite focused on the local landscape, but the UK players are obviously part of a much broader global context. So are there any learnings that we can draw from the global peers? Yeah, na- naturally, it's hard not to look across the pond, across the Atlantic to, to answer this question. So we studied Charles Schwab, which is a, 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 a big, to say the least, brokerage business in the US with 34 million customers and almost $8 trillion of assets under, uh, under administration. And, and their history is fascinating you, know, you, you learn about the importance of advice for customer retention uh, and the importance of growth to build a competitive advantage, which is scale in a market which has been commoditized over time. And you know, Schwab's done a very good job of using scale to reduce their own expenses to client assets, which has then enabled them to free up capital to reinvest in their, in their own customer proposition via new products, better services, and, and lower price, creating an extremely happy 34 million customers, you know, which, is, which is paramount because everything starts with the customer. And over time, you know, Schwab have reduced fees in many areas to the point now where they essentially make the majority of their return on capital by reinvesting their, their clients' idle cash, which only represents 4 to 5% of, 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 of the client's total assets. Or, or put another way, they charge next to nothing for the services on 95% of the total client's assets, which you know, highlights how excellent the customer value proposition is. Now, the, the quid pro quo to this model, because there always is a quid pro quo, is that you know, they had to have a bank to enable this monetization to take place, which has been a headwind in the short term, at least, on the back of pretty unprecedented interest rate increases. So client deposits have been drawn down as users you know, do what they do at this time in the cycle, and that's hunt for yield, and, and have actually been investing in, in money market funds. Of, of course, this is, this is natural and doesn't concern us because the money is actually staying on platform. Um, but it, but it is an interesting learning, and you know Schwab, Schwab is a truly brilliant proposition for the customer. Again, I've said that I've said that twice, and I'll say that again. Uh, but perhaps they have built a model which is reliant on on idle cash or too reliant on idle cash, and something they might well have to address as they look forward. You know, and, and I think I think you know st- taking a step back, the other learning, which is an important one, is just how well the industry's grown over time in a market which is probably ten to fifteen years. Uh, further ahead of the UK and, and is slightly more sophisticated than the UK as things stand today. So roughly one in five people have brokerage accounts in the US, which compares to the UK currently, which is roughly one in one in 20. So we think the growth runway is really supported when we look across the pond, which is a good thing. Brilliant. And if we journey back uh, onto local land and Anna, from your end, what are the drivers that are ultimately behind this uh, potential and all this runway for growth in the UK and this platform space? I think there are a number of both long-term and short-term drivers which provide um, should provide good growth for, for many, many years in the UK. And actually, the sector has grown at a 14% compound annual growth rate for the last decade alone. And, and we think the addressable market in the UK is actually £3 trillion, pounds, so it is quite large. I think there are probably three key growth drivers in the UK. One of them would be demographics, another would be 
government and regulation. And the third would be technology. So the first of those demographics, the UK, like everywhere else, has an ageing population which is living and working longer. So both saving for longer and also needing to save for a longer retirement. And the ONS estimates that a third of people born in the UK in 2016 will live to 100, which compares to only one in 10 for people who are over 50 at the moment. So that's quite a big driver for the need to save. And at the same time, employers have made a shift from defined benefit to defined contribution schemes, which means that individuals must take more responsibility for their own savings. And as Ben just said, it's encouraging to see that in the US, where people have their own responsibility for savings, it's it's encouraging to see how rapid the growth has been over there, um, because actually it drives interest in the sector and, and we think provides more of an incentive to save. So the second driver in the UK is probably the government and regulatory changes. The UK is trying to reinforce this incentive for people to take responsibility for their own savings. They've abolished the lifetime pension allowance, so there's no limit now on how much you save for your pension, um, which may not last forever, but certainly that's that's the current case. And they made pensions far more flexible and transferable, which means consumers have much greater freedom to invest their pension savings in line with however they want to. They can move their pensions around, they can shop around and be more flexible about how they draw their benefits down over time. And then the third driver, we think, is technology. The consumer apps now are very, very user-friendly. And all of this helps in driving people's awareness, but also providing access. It's also worth just adding to that, that the flows do have a recurring element to them. Because um, people each year are trying to, to benefit from, from the tax wrapper allowance that they're that they're entitled to. So, so each year, as long as you're employed, you do contribute X amount of your earnings to, to a SIP each year. And you also try to contribute to your ISA. Um, so you know, when you think about that from the business model's point of view, these businesses don't necessarily need to add customers to grow because existing customers will keep adding flows onto the platform. And that is a really key part of their, of their, of their, of their growth through time. It's really encouraging to hear that there are so many positive factors driving both the long-term and short-term growth. But I think to keep the scales balanced a little bit, uh, I'd like to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that all three of us are currently living in a cost-of-living crisis. Um, You know, recently the Bank of England has just released their inflation figures. And while we're seeing that trend coming down, perhaps not to the level that the consumer might want. So inflation is sticky. We're in a cost-of-living crisis. Surely this has an impact on flows. And, you know, can these platform businesses grow in this environment? You're absolutely right, Kerry. The short term environment is very challenging. But actually, flows have held up relatively well, which we think, you know, in spite of all the challenges, which we think is testament to the long term structural growth drivers that are underlying this sector and, and that have driven such fast growth over the last 10 years. So, for example, St. James's Place, um, their net flows for the first quarter of this year were equivalent to 5% organic growth. And they have a 96% retention ratio, which is a very enviable retention ratio for any kind of business. Um, Similarly, AJ Bell had 95% retention ratio and and similar levels, mid-single digit growth. Um, And so did Harkis Lansdowne. So in spite of Q1 being one of, you know, very, very, very low consumer and investor confidence, we think that's quite a reassuring number. But as Ben just mentioned, it's also important to remember how recurring many of these flows are. So as long as you're employed you're going to be probably making contributions into your SIP. Similarly, most people 
once they've put money in to these platforms, they're held within a tax wrapper. So they might be held within an ISA or a SIP, and that creates a barrier to withdrawing. So that, that makes the money very, very sticky. And, and lastly, if we think about better times ahead, these platforms have continued to grow and attract flows throughout the last few years. You know, Hargreaves Lansdowne has 30, 30% more users than it did in 2019. So I think that, that helps to demonstrate the potential cold spring that there is within UK savings. If we see a better economic environment and you have a far higher number of customers contributing their savings each month, then growth should accelerate to higher levels than we saw in the past. Just a big thank you to both of you. You've really brought to life how dynamic and evolving this landscape is. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to come from the UK savings space uh, within the UK financial sector. So I greatly uh, thank you for your time and look forward to more downloads with you on this topic and the like in the future. Thanks, Kerry. Thank you, Kerry. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.